Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. John chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. And the word of the Sovereign Lord reads, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again, and, I, and will I take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the word of our risen Lord. Martin Luther once wrote, I must listen to the gospel. It tells me not what I must do, but what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has done for me. So in a couple of weeks, we as a church are going to reinaugurate the celebrating of Easter here at First Baptist Church, both at the park for our sunrise service and then also for our regular worship service at 11 o'clock. And I use the word reinaugurate purposefully because the, the truth is last year, in light of the fact that we knew very little about the coronavirus and we were not really sure what, what we were dealing with, we erred on the side of caution. And for the first time in 82 years in the life of this congregation, we didn't meet together on Easter morning. And so for me, this particular Easter coming up is especially meaningful. In fact, when I look back over this year, and I see the things that we have all been through. I know what you've been through. I know what I've been through. I can't even imagine how we would have gotten to, through it without each other. But seeing what we've been through and, and how we have seen the need to be together as a church family and recognizing that the only real hope that we have is not the government and is not a vaccine. The only hope that we have and that the world has is Christ Himself. With that in mind, this coming Easter is particularly important to me. Not to mention the fact that this Easter, we are actually concluding the long-running series of the Gospel of Mark, as we will be in the text about the resurrection of Jesus Christ in Mark chapter 16. I feel like it's a fitting way to wrap up that sermon series that's lasted for two and a half years by doing so on Easter. And I got to tell you, it's, I almost feel a little sad about it. It's like we've been in Mark for so long and I've read this text so many times. It's almost like saying, I'm getting ready to say goodbye to an old friend. Now we can come back to it, but it's been such an important part you know, of our lives for two and a half years now. And so again, Easter, the celebration will take place in two weeks, again, is very special in light of all of those things, right? And so in light of that, we taking some time, we are taking some time in the last few weeks to prepare our hearts 
for the coming Easter. I believe it's an important way for us to do that is, is for us to spend time talking about and reflecting on the gospel of Jesus Christ, not just in a superficial way, but in an in-depth way. I mean, here's the truth, right? We at Traverse Baptist Church, you know if you're going to hear something out of me in this pulpit at some point during the sermon, you're going to hear us talk about the gospel. In fact, every single Sunday, it's my mission to proclaim the gospel from this pulpit. But I think this time of year, as, as the rest of the world around us begins to think about the cross, and as the rest of the world starts looking to the empty tomb, and as the rest of the world starts preparing for their time with family, I think it's a good opportunity for us to slow down and really think through the foundational truths of the gospel and our faith. You see, we understand, historically speaking, the gospel itself is actually quite simple. It is. The gospel is the good news that God saves you by doing for you what you cannot do for yourself. It's really very simple. Again, God, in His love for you, saves you by doing for you all the things you cannot do for yourself. But the problem is, for all of its simplicity, for some reason throughout history, people tend to move beyond the simplicity of the gospel of grace, and we tend to make it complicated. There's a tendency to make it more than what it really is. There's a tendency to add to the gospel, and in the process, subvert the gospel. Because here's the truth that you can count on for the rest of your life. If there's a little ism you can take from me and write down and say, Pastor, I remember Pastor Sherman saying that, right? Is this, the gospel plus anything else is not the gospel, right? It's a simple mathematical formulation, right? The gospel plus anything else is zero. It doesn't mean anything. But that's what we look back, see in, in church history, we see people for some reason complicating and distorting the gospel. The gospel of grace by the 16th century had become unrecognizable because of the evolving nature of, of church tradition. Over time, the church had taken the simple, clear truths of the gospel and turned it into this complex, disheartening system of works righteousness. Right? It became about rituals and rules and sacraments, and all of which can do nothing to relieve a person's guilt before God. In fact, as we've been talking about in this short series, that's what Martin Luther's very own experience was. He was an Augustinian monk who was keenly aware that, of, that, that he was in sin, and he had a terrible dread of the judgment of God. At least he had that much. So, much, so many people in our own country and in our own world have no sense of dread before God. People think that God sometimes is just this old grandpa figure in the sky, and there's no sense of dread at all for his judgment. But Martin Luther at least dreaded the judgment of God and was aware of his sin, and he did everything the Catholic Church told him to do in order that he might somehow be able to be right with God. He did it all. He did penance. He went to confession, sometimes for six hours at a time. He went on pilgrimages. He gave up all the pleasures of, of regular life. He even tortured his own body in order to make it submit to, to his will so that he could finally somehow make God love him, only to discover his guilt was growing worse. He learned the very hard way that there was nothing you can do to make God love you on your own, that there's nothing a person can do on their own to earn God's favor. And he began to hate God and to resent Him because it seemed like his hope of escaping God's 
righteousness and justice was impossible. But then he ended up reading Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, simply reading the text for what it says, he understood and rediscovered the simple truth about the gospel, the simple truth that is plain in the words of Scripture. As Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as is written, the righteous shall live by what? Live by faith. Hear those words. The righteous shall live by faith. Not by works. Not by religious activities. Not by rituals. Not by confession. Not by anything else. The righteous live by faith. This is the truth, by the way, that's found in both the Old and New Testament. And this is the truth that Martin Luther rediscovered by reading the Word of God. And this discovery not only set Martin Luther free from the guilt of his sin, but it also sparked a movement that would lead to reclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and the foundational truths of the Christian faith. And in the process, would change all of the world. And this moment of reclaiming the gospel came to be known as the Reformation. It is the reformation of God's church and the Christian faith. And it was during this time period of the Reformation that five foundational ideas about the nature of salvation were rediscovered. And this, this movement, these five foundational ideas came to be, to be reflected in five Latin slogans that helped to kind of anchor our thinking on these things. And these five Latin slogans were called the five solas of the Reformation. And these solas are sola scriptura, sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, and soli deo gloria. And I think for me, the easiest way to remember those, because it took me a minute to, to memorize these things, is that you were saved by grace alone, or sola gratia, through faith alone, sola fide, in Christ alone, solus Christus, and it's all for the glory of God alone, soli Deo Gloria. And all of this is made clear by our sole and infallible authority in all matters of faith in life, which is the Scripture alone, or sola Scriptura. These five sola statements reflect the work of many men during the 16th and 17th centuries to clarify and to make it easy to teach the simple foundational truths about the gospel of Jesus Christ. The simple truth that salvation is all God's work on our behalf and we simply receive that by faith alone and not our works. And so with all of that, we have been, with all of that, I believe exploring these five sola statements from the Reformation is a great way for us to prepare ourselves to celebrate Easter because they remind us of the simplicity and the supremacy of the gospel. And, and I believe that, that, there, that, that we are at a time in history, I believe that we are at a place in history, we need to be reminded of these things. Because the truth is this, we live at a time where we continue to need reformation in the church. We live in a time where people are being taught that you need to get saved so that God will make all your dreams come true. 
that if God, if you'll put your faith in Jesus, He's going to bless you materially, that He will make you healthy, wealthy, and happy if you'll just have enough faith. We live at a time where people are being told that they need to try on Jesus like they try on a t-shirt just to see if He fits. We live in a time where people are being told if you make an emotional profession of faith, you have, you have your ticket punched in heaven no matter what happened in your heart and no matter what your life looks like after that. We live in a time where people are being told that following Jesus means rejecting what the world teaches about things like marriage. Excuse me. We live in a time where people are being told that following God means rejecting what He teaches in His Word about marriage and about sexuality and the sanctity of life. We live in a time where people are being told that the gospel is loving God and loving all other people, not realizing that loving God and loving other people are the commandments that reflect the law and that you can't do it. That's why you need the gospel. We live in a time where people are being taught that, that all your kids need is an hour and a half in church right? One day a week to combat the worldview that's being forced on them by six hours a day at church. Five days a week. We live in a time when people call themselves Christians and willingly abandon the commandments of Scripture in order to follow the commandments of Caesar. And then, even worse, even worse, we live in a time where the church itself has been infected by the woke mob and Marxism and intersectionality, and people are being taught that the grace of God is not enough to tear down the dividing line between us. We're being taught that our common faith is not enough to unite us in Christ, especially those of us who don't have as much melanin in our skin as other people. There's a growing number of people who call themselves Christians who will say that my repentance and faith in Christ is not enough to make me part of God's family and one of their brothers in Christ because I must find some way to make atonement for the color of my skin. That I must somehow make atonement for my ancestors regardless of the fact that I'm not responsible of what they may or may not have done in history. As we approach Easter, I think we... we we would do well to remember the Latin phrase, which is sola reformanda, which means always reforming. Always reforming, because we need to continue to pursue the reformation of the church as the world and the church struggles with the simplicity of the gospel. We need to come back to the gospel and the simplicity of the gospel again and again and again. The reformation and the pursuit of biblical truth is just as important today as it was 500 years ago. And that's why we are preparing for Easter in this short series titled The Five Solas. And we began this short series a few weeks ago talking about sola scriptura, and the truth that the Bible is the sole final authority for all matters of faith and practice. And that is just as relevant, again, today as it was then. The Bible, not our traditions, not the Pope, not the government or philosophy or culture or the social justice movement, and not even our emotions. None of those things are authoritative for us. The Bible alone is our authoritative standard of truth, of faith and life, and all the other things must then find their submission to the Word of God. 
And that authority tells us that we are saved by grace alone. Sola gratia. That's what we talked about a few weeks ago. In week two, we talked about the fact that we're saved by not anything within us, but by God's amazing grace in spite of us. And then last week, we talked about sola fide, or faith alone. We are saved by grace alone as a gift, and that gift is received by us as a gift, not by the works that we do or effort, but by faith alone. Salvation is granted to us by God Himself when we receive it by faith. It is by faith that you enter into the kingdom of God. It is by faith you are kept in the kingdom of God. And so we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. And this week we're going to continue to work our way through the solas and talk about the object of our faith. And that is solus Christus or Christ alone. You see, the truth is this. In a world that seems to be full of faith, it is not enough for you to have faith in something. I want you to hear me on this. It's not enough to have faith. That faith itself avails nothing. That faith must be attached to or grounded in something. It must be grounded or attached to an object. Your faith, no matter how big it is or small it is, if it is faith, it must, it, it must be a, a faith that, that's grounded in something that can accomplish something. Right? Your faith must be fixed to, to something or someone else. In other words, the object of your faith must be something that's real. The object of your faith must be, must be something that, that you can depend on, trust in. Otherwise, your faith ultimately, no matter how big it is, is pointless. You see, your faith must rest on something that is worthy of your faith. Because faith implies trust. Whatever you trust in must then, by definition, be trustworthy. It must be able to accomplish what you're trusting it to do. For example, I am standing on this pulpit on the stage here, and I want you to realize I, I, I am trusting it to support my weight. I have faith in its integrity. I trust in it. That's why I'm standing here. If you think about this, below my feet is the basement, and from this point right here, it's a very long drop. I have faith in the construction of the floor below me. I have complete confidence in it. That's why I don't look like a fool standing here. Whatever you trust in must be able to do what it is you're trusting for it to do. And it really works the same way with people too. My wife tells me that she loves me and that she's committed to me. And because of that, I trust in her. I trust that when she goes to work or when she interacts with other people, I trust that she will always do right by me in all circumstances. Why? Because I've learned that I can trust her. I know that I can trust her. I have faith in her. And I have good reasons for that. She has proven over and over again to be trustworthy to me. I can depend on her. Now, on the other hand, I have a friend that I care about very deeply. But despite their best efforts, that person will always be forever late. If they say, I'm going to be there at 10 o'clock, I know for a fact that's just not going to happen. I do not have faith that they're going to arrive when they say they're going to arrive. I know that it'll probably be like 11 or 11.30. Right? As much as I care about this person, I don't have faith in what they say about when they're going to arrive. Why? Because they've given me reason not to depend on that. I know it's not going to happen. But the funny thing is, is I know people you know, who also will take this person at their word. 
And they have faith that this person will show up when they will. And what, guess what happens? When they don't, they get upset. As if, like, you didn't already know. You see, their faith in this person is misplaced. They are, they are let down. Well, it's the same thing with our faith in God because what you put your faith in for salvation is what you're trusting in to deliver you and save you from your sin. You understand that, right? What you put your faith in for salvation is what you're trusting in and depending on to save you from your sin and the wrath of God, which means what you put your faith in absolutely needs to be able to deliver. What you, need to, what you trust in actually needs to have the ability to save you. You see, the object of your faith actually, I want you to hear me on this. The object of your faith is actually a lot more important than your faith itself. You see, there's a thing in, in the world around us that just says, if you'll just believe enough, that's what you see in all the movies, right? Right? If you just believe, anything's possible. If you just believe, right? That's what we're told. That's what the, 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 that's what the um, prosperity gospel tells you. If you don't have the money you, you want, and you just don't believe enough. If God hasn't healed you, then you just don't believe enough. That somehow, someway, that the magic bullet is not the object of your faith, but it's your faith. I'm going to tell you the truth. That is the opposite, that way that it really is. The object of your faith is much more important than your faith itself. Let me give you an example. If I decided to have a lot of faith in a small little kid's folding chair to support my weight, my faith is really kind of irrelevant. Okay, let me just, no mystery here. Just look at me, right? Doesn't matter how much faith I have. My faith will not overcome the chair's limitations. My faith will not make the chair stronger, right? But what if, for some reason, I struggle to have faith to trust in one of these chairs that are in here? But somehow, someway, I muster enough, just enough faith to just go ahead and finally sit down in the chair. Quickly, I find out that the chair can actually support my weight, and my confidence in faith will grow. You see, the strength of the chair has the ability to overcome the limits of my faith. In fact, the chair has the ability to strengthen my faith in it. Can you, can you see the correlation that we're drawing here? You see, the object of your faith is actually much more important than your faith itself. And so if you have total and complete faith and confidence, but that faith is invested in a false god such as Michael the archangel or some man who worked really, really hard to become a god like all his forefathers before him, your faith is invested in a false god and you will discover at some point the truth that the object of your faith is going to fail you completely. Doesn't matter how much faith you have. I don't care how much confidence you have. I don't care how excited you are about it. But the truth is, the Bible teaches us that if you have the tiniest bit of faith, the, the faith represented in the size of a mustard seed, a faith like that will not only move mountains, but a faith like that will lead you all the way to life. Why? It's because the object of your faith. The theologian D.A. Carson once used an example that I just absolutely love. I really wish I could 
if I could grow up and be someone else, it would be D.A. Carson, okay? Just super smart, you know. But anyway, he tells this story that I just feel is like really gets to the point. He says, imagine there are these two Jewish men in Egypt, and they're standing outside of their, their respective houses, and it's the evening right before the Passover. And they're talking about all that's happened and the commandment that Moses has just given them to put blood on the doorposts. And the first man is like, man, can you believe all that's happening? It's really scary. It's terrifying. Can you believe? You know? And Moses said that if, if we don't do this, then one of our firstborns is going to die. Well, are you going to do that? Of course I'm going to, but I mean, I'm really scared. I mean, what if it doesn't work? I'm, I'm terrified. I'm terrified of what's going to happen next. You know, I don't want my firstborn to die. And the other one says, I don't know why you're so scared. Moses said, do it, so I'm going to do it. He's been right all these times. I'm just going to trust what he says. So I'm just going to do it. So both men go into their respective homes. And the angel of the Lord comes in the night. And which one do you think of them who had their house passed over and then their family survived? And the answer is, both of them. Both of them. Do you know why? Because their salvation wasn't dependent upon the strength of their faith. The salvation depended upon the blood of the Lamb, the object of their faith. That's the truth that we need to hold on to. The object of your faith is much more important than your faith that you have itself. And Christ, as Christians, whether you are a veteran Christian who's been a Christian for many years and seen God faithful all your life, or you're a brand new Christian and you're just hoping you know, that, that God will love someone like you, all of us have the same object of faith, and that is none other than Christ Jesus Himself, the very Son of God. Jesus, brothers and sisters, is the object of our faith. He is the one that we're trusting in. He is the one who we're depending on. It is He that we're hoping in. And what we know from the Scriptures is that He is trustworthy. He's deserving of our faith. Because He can do the very thing that we're trusting Him to do. And that is to save us from our sins. As Paul tells, tells us that Jesus came into the world to do what? To save sinners. 1 Timothy 1.15 Jesus himself said, I came to seek and save the lost in Luke 19.10. That is the promise that we're holding on to. That's the promise we're believing in. Not that he's going to make our lives perfect here, because he said the opposite. He said, in this world you will have trouble. We're believing in him to save us from our sin. That's the promise we're trusting in Christ for. Now, how do we know then that we can believe that promise? How do we know that our faith in him is not misplaced? Well, we know because of the event that we're going to be celebrating in two weeks, and that is the resurrection. We know that our faith is not in vain because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, proving beyond a shadow of a doubt that He is what He claimed to be, God in the flesh, and that He can do exactly what He promised to do, which is to save us from our sins. In fact, that is the testable part of our faith. Paul says in Romans chapter, I mean, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Beginning in verse 12, he says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of, of the dead, 
then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then, your, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Paul, I want you to hear this, okay? If you're a Christian, this is another reason to have confidence in your faith. Paul makes it clear that the object of our faith is critical. And he's saying the object of our faith, if he was not resurrected, then your faith is misplaced and meaningless, which means the Christian faith, unlike every other faith in the world, the Christian faith is testable. Do you realize that? All the truth claims of all the other religions, there's no objective way to test them. But with the Christian faith, you can actually test them. Because here's the truth. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, then we were wasting our time. But if he did come back from the dead, then you have every confidence and every reason to hope that Jesus will do what he promised to do. Well, Paul continues in that same section and says, beginning in verse 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ is raised. And if Christ is not, has not been raised, your faith is futile. We, you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If Christ, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be the most pitied. Verse 20, though. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man came also the resurrection of the dead. Paul declares Christ did indeed raise from the dead. The entire Bible itself testifies to that fact. But more than that, if you've been here for any length of time at all, you know that the resurrection of Christ is the best attested to historical event in all of antiquity. There's nothing that comes in close. There's more direct and indirect evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ than any single event in all of ancient human history. So we can absolutely be confident that not only did Christ come back from the dead, but we can be confident Christ will do as He promised to do in His Word, which means Jesus is God the Son, and He is worthy of our faith, which might, which, and we are right to make Him then the object of our faith. Now, with all that being said, what we must come to terms with is the fact that Christ must be our only object of our faith for salvation, that Jesus must be the only thing that we're hoping for for our faith. As the reformers recaptured this truth, right, that we must have faith in Him and Him alone. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We are justified by faith in Christ alone and no other. Now, why is that such an important thing to us? Why is it so important that we make this, this distinction? I mean, shouldn't it just simply matter that a person believes in Jesus? Isn't that just enough, right? Why must they have faith in Him and Him alone? I mean, the truth is, faith in Christ is not anything new. It wasn't new in the 16th century. In fact, it's always been the foundation of the church, by the way, right? You can't be a Christian without faith in Christ. That's just implied in the name. If you're saved, you have to have faith in Christ. Even the, the Catholic Church at the time affirmed that. You had to believe in Him, otherwise you can't be a Christian by definition. 
If you don't have faith in Christ, you can be everything, anything else you want to be. You can be Jewish or a Buddhist or Muslim or secular humanist, but you cannot be a Christian without faith in Christ. So even the Catholic Church taught that you must have faith in Christ. Why this distinction, Christ alone? Have you ever really thought about that? I mean, because we already understand it's by grace alone and not by anything that we merit. And we know that it's by, by, by faith alone and not by our works. Why does it say Christ alone? Well, the reason is over the years, between the 4th and the 15th century, slowly over time, the object of the Christian faith began to be more than just Christ. For some reason, the church began to adopt a position that faith was about, about Christ and other people as well. It was about trusting Christ and also trusting His mother Mary for salvation. And then it became about Christ and Mary and the saints. And then it became about those things and the relics and rites like indulgences and about papal authority for people to have salvation. And suddenly the object of the Christian faith became the objects of the Christian faith. And these objects became necessary for salvation with Christ. And for Martin Luther and the rest of the Christian world, prior to the Reformation, the object of one's faith was not just one object anymore. It was multiple objects. Somehow through the evolution of theology, Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, became less than sufficient enough to save. Somehow Christ was not enough to save you. And somehow mankind ended up needing more than Jesus. The world needed more than Christ interceding for them. The world needed Jesus and His mom to intercede as well. But then that wasn't enough the church needed the saints to intercede for believers too, and it needed the priests to intercede on a person's behalf as well. Christ, the Son of the living God, who has been our high priest, who makes atonement for us by His own blood, for some reason was seen as not enough to save. What a strange proposition. He was not enough to save you. You needed Him, and you needed Mary, and the saints, and the priests, and the Pope to help. This is what slowly happened over time. The theology of the Catholic Church devolved, and the central truth about the gospel and the object of our faith became obscured under traditions. But as Martin Luther read the New Testament, he saw that this was not true. This was nonsense. Christians don't need the church to be saved. Now, as a Christian, you need the church in your life to grow and, and, to, and to really flourish as a Christian. We need each other, but you don't need the church to be saved. And Christians don't need traditions to be saved. You don't. Now, as Christians, traditions help us to grow in our understanding. They give us a framework and a context for worship. But we don't need those things to be saved. And Christians certainly don't need Mary, the mother of Jesus, to be saved. And we don't need confessionals for salvation, though you should absolutely confess your sin one to another, as the Bible tells us. Right? And we don't need the, the Eucharist, right? We should absolutely take the Lord's table, but that's not what saves you, right? And you don't certainly need indulgences. What Martin Luther and the Reformers realized upon reading the Scriptures is, is what people need, is what they've always needed, and what they will always need until Christ returns, and that is Christ Himself. Christ and Christ alone. What everyone needs is solus Christus, 
And the reason why we know this to be true is because that's what the Bible teaches us. The Bible itself, our scriptures teach us. In fact, the Apostle Paul tells us in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, he says, I mean, excuse me, the, the Apostle Peter, forgive me. The Apostle Peter says in Acts 4, verse 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven among men which we must be saved. No other name. None. Not in the name of the church, not in the name of the saints, not in the name of Muhammad, not in the name of Buddha, not in the name of Joseph Smith, not in the name of Mary. There is salvation in no other name but Jesus Christ and Christ alone. As Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter uh, 2, verse 5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. I want you to hear that. This is one of the most important texts on this subject. If anybody's ever confused about what we need, this text right here makes it really, really clear. There's one God and only one mediator between God and man. Not multiple mediators. The Catholic Church at the time insisted, and, and by the way, still insists to this day, that, the, that Christ is still not enough. You need the saints to intercede and be mediators. You need Mary to intercede and be a mediator. In fact, the Catholic Church even today still calls Mary the mediatrix. Mediatrix, that's the female form of the word mediator. Right? That's why that's why they pray to Mary. That's why they ask her to intercede and pray. They, they want her to be a mediator. And as, as if that were not enough, you also need the local priest to be your mediator as well. You need him to perform the Eucharist for you. Otherwise, you can't be saved without it. You also need him to hear your confessions, and you need him to forgive your sins. You also need him to be there for when you die to give you the last rites. Otherwise, you might die in your sin and end up in purgatory or, or hell. But Martin Luther and the Reformers saw the Scriptures were at odds with church tradition and these teachings. Right? As Paul clearly says, For there is one God, and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Christ alone, Jesus is our only mediator. Christ alone must be the object of our faith. Which, by the way, is what Jesus himself tells us. Look with me again at John chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. By the way, this is one of my favorite. i got lots of favorite verses, okay? But if you need one to make you... To, to, to give you comfort for your hearts, if you need something to give you strength in time of trouble, this text right here, I think, fits the bill. Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. Let's just kind of pause for a second. Coming through a time of deep trouble. You see, the reason why Jesus tells His disciples not to let their hearts be troubled at that time is because it's a really stressful time. I mean, we've been through some stressful times, but this was a very difficult time. Because we know this is the end of Jesus' ministry, and Jesus is about to be arrested and tried and falsely convicted and killed, and Jesus is preparing them for this. And He has been preparing them for this. In fact, if you remember, as we went through Mark, that Jesus three times made it really clear that He was going to be delivered to His enemies, and they were going to kill Him. All right, that's what he's been talking about to this point. And now they're here at the Last Supper and he's telling them that one of them is going to betray him. And then he's also is, is going to tell Peter that he's going to deny him. 
and he's going to go away from them. And so this is a very strange and disconcerting time for the followers. I can't even imagine. You know, there, there, there are times where I think we say, man, I would love to have been there in the times of Jesus. And I'm going, oh, I don't know. This is pretty scary stuff back then. I mean, Peter fell down on his face and denied Jesus. I'm not Peter. So you see where I'm going with that? A stressful time. They don't fully understand what Jesus is talking about here. But then Jesus says to them, where I'm, in fact, he said just before, he said to them, where I'm going, you cannot follow me, but you will follow afterwards. So they must be confused and, you know, obviously upset. And so Jesus seeks to encourage them. He says, let, your, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. He's saying, put your trust in me the same way that you are trusting in the Father. And then he makes this glorious promise that we all look forward to, a promise that gives us all peace. He said, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. And where I am, you may be also. This is the promise that we are holding on to. This is the promise that you are trusting Christ for. Right? This is the promise that changed our entire world. Before we had Christ, all we had to look forward to was the prospect that one day we'll be standing before a holy, righteous, and just God in our sins, somehow trying to give an account for our lives and trying to convince God that we're somehow good people. Knowing that we have all fallen short. Knowing that all the things that we've done and all the things that we have thought, knowing that we rightly deserve for God to pour His wrath on us and consign us to hell. That's what we would look forward to, and that's what the world today looks forward to. But now we have been saved by grace through faith in Christ, and because of that, we don't dread the future. We don't fear tomorrow anymore. We don't fear death like the world does. We look forward to one day seeing Christ. We embrace that truth. That's what gives us the peace to carry on day after day because Christ promised that we were trusting and He promised to bring us home and we're trusting Him for that. But there's going to come a time when Jesus Himself will take us home. That Jesus Himself is prepared to be with us. What a comforting thought that He's already prepared for that time. And when that happens, when we are with Him, we will be with Him forever, as the Bible tells us in Romans, excuse me, Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 and 4. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Let that just settle into your soul. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. And then here comes the part that everybody loves. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's the promise. That is what those of us who are saved by faith look forward to. That's what Martin Luther so desperately wanted. That's what he worked for so many years under the Catholic system of salvation. He desired with all of his heart to know that that was his future. But that future is not available by what you do. 
It's not available by your works. It's not available by your own self-righteousness. This future is not available by the traditions of men. This future is not available because you trust in some obscure saints. This future is only available through Christ and Christ alone. This is the promise that is made available to us by the grace of God and is received by faith in Christ alone. In fact, Jesus continues and says, and you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Understand, Jesus said, you already know the way to heaven. And Thomas is not entirely sure at all what Jesus is even talking about. says, we don't know the way. How can we know the way? And then Jesus clarifies and he says to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the way. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus says the way to heaven and the way to peace and the way to God himself is him. He says, I am the way. Jesus says, you know the way. And Thomas said, we don't know the way. Jesus said, yeah, you do. You do. You know the way. Because you know me. I'm the way. I'm how you get there. Not religions. Not rules. Not traditions. Not fasting. Not torturing your body. Not social justice movement. Not your good works, not praying to the saints, not asking Mary to pray for you. I am the way, he says. He says, and I'm preparing a place for you in heaven so that we can then live together forever. The only way to salvation is not a thing. This is where we just need it to just rest our minds and hearts. The way to salvation is not a thing. It is a person, the person of Jesus Christ. And because of that, He is the only object of our faith. Because He is the way, the truth, and the life. And if that's not clear enough, right? if that weren't clear enough by itself, then He goes on and says, no one, and believe me, I want you to hear the words here, because we, we live in a pluralistic world that somehow wants to include everybody because we just feel nice, but I want you to hear me. He says, no one, no one comes to the Father except me. Again, if there's a truth you want to let settle into your heart, that's the one. No one can come to the Father in heaven unless they come through Christ. Why? Because He's the only way to get there. He's the only one. He is the way and the truth and the life. So no one gets there without Him. It doesn't matter how religious you are. Again, we have a sentimental culture that thinks, but they're really so sincere. It doesn't matter. It's not about your sincerity. It's not about how nice you are. It doesn't matter how good you think you are. It doesn't matter how many homeless people you feed. It doesn't matter how many people you help on the side of the road. No one comes to the Father by what they do. 
They only come through Christ. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the very path to heaven. I am the very truth about God and salvation. And I'm the very life. Life eternal is in me because I am that life. He's the author of life. Jesus says that a few chapters earlier, by the way, when talking to Lazarus's sister, he said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. John chapter 1, verse 4, even makes it even more clear. He says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Christ is the life because he's the author of life. The only way to God, the only way to heaven, the only way to be saved is through Christ alone. Now again, why Christ alone? I mean, I know he's the way, truth, and life, but why just him? Why not something else or someone else? Why can't we just believe in something? Well, Jesus tells us in the text very clearly. The problem is, is when we read it in English, we overlook it. But it's right here. You see, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and life. And the most important part of that expression is the expression, I am. You see, the phrase is translated from the Greek words, ego, I, me. And the reason why this is so important is because this isn't the first time that Jesus uses this expression. In fact, he uses this expression 23 times in the book of John. Seven times are connected with statements that include important metaphors to help reveal who he is. He said, I am, ego, I, me, the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door to the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Jesus uses this expression, ego, I, me, or I am, to reveal himself in the book of John so we understand really clearly who he is. And perhaps the greatest revelation of Jesus came in John chapter 8 where Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees and the scribes and Jesus tells them, Okay. Now, anytime, you, ever, anytime somebody ever tells you that you need to be nice, like Jesus, remember, Jesus tells the scribes and the Pharisees, you're sons of the devil. All right. Again, we think we live by the 11th commandment, thou shalt be nice. It's not always about being nice. It's about loving people and telling them the truth. And Jesus tells the truth all the time. And he tells them, you're the sons, you're children of the devil. Right? And they argue and say, we're not children of the devil, we're children of Abraham. And Jesus leverages that and said, yeah, Abraham longed to see my day, and in fact, did see it. And they're like, wait a minute, you're not even 50 years old. How in the world did Abraham see you who lived centuries before? And then Jesus said, one of the most controversial things he could have ever said, he said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Ego, I me. And when they heard him say that, what did they do? They picked up stones to try to kill him. Why? The reason why they wanted to kill him is because he knew exactly what he was saying. He was calling himself the name of God, the name that God used when he talked to Moses. Moses asked God, who will I tell them that sent me to rescue the Jews? And God says, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And this expression that Jesus used, right? the Jews knew exactly what he meant when he used it. He was calling himself God. That's why they wanted to kill him. He said before 
He said before to the Jews, Abraham was, I am. Ego I me. And he uses the same expression again here in this text. He says, I am. Ego I me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. You see, the reason why Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and the reason why Jesus is the way to heaven is because Jesus is God incarnate. He is God in the flesh. As we've read so many times in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then the Word became what? Flesh. You see, the reason why He is the way and the object of our faith is because Jesus is fully God and fully man. Jesus is both divinity and humanity. And as such, only he can reconcile God to man. As Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18, and all of this is a gift of God who brought us back to him through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him for God was in Christ, reconciling the world to Himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. Christ is the only one who can reconcile God to man because He Himself is the only one who is both fully God and fully man. Only He and He alone is qualified to be the mediator. Only Jesus can bridge the gap between God and man because in Him, in His very nature, is the reconciliation. In Him... As a man, he satisfies the righteous requirements of the law for us and then pays the penalty for our sins. But in him as God, he has the ability to give us the grace that we need to be saved. In Christ, all the righteous requirements are met for salvation, for that to be possible. He is both the just and the justifier. He is both the one who holds us accountable, but also the one who makes it possible to be saved. He is both our propitiation for sin, but also the righteousness we need for life. As Peter says, and there is no salvation in no one else, for there is no name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We are saved, my brothers and sisters, by sola gratia, by grace alone through sola fide, faith alone, in solus Christus, in Christ alone. If you walk out of here today, I want you to hear me, what I say. You're not set free by what you do. You're not set free by a church. You're not set free by traditions. You're not set free by you somehow making yourself good enough for God to look at you. You're set free by Christ alone. And because of that, he must be the only object of our faith. And if you trust in him alone, he will not fail you. And in that, I have two things left to say. Number one, if you have been trusting in your life anything but Christ, repent and believe the gospel today. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that Christ is calling you to repent and believe and enter the kingdom. And he has promised, if you will call on his name, he will not forsake you. And if you need to know more about how you can trust Christ, then come and talk to me or one of the deacons in this church. We'd be happy to walk you through that. Secondly, for those of you who are in Christ, which I think includes the majority of you, 
we need to continue to live by this same truth. Because there's something in us that's performance-driven somehow, right? When you fall down and make a mess of things, it's almost like you forget that you, your salvation is contingent upon Him alone. When you fall down on your face, there's a tendency that thinks, oh, I need to try harder and work harder and be better and make all these rules and live by these rules and hopefully God will accept me and love me. He already knew what you were capable of before He rescued you. Your sin does not surprise Him. What you do is come back to your senses and remember you're saved by Him alone and you hold on to Him even harder. You trust in Him even more because He has proven to be dependable. You continue to do what you did in the beginning. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and hold on to Jesus. That is your life, and it will be until he takes you home, brothers and sisters. That is your peace, by the way. Right? What if I'm not saved? Do you trust in Jesus? Yes. Then hold on to that, and he'll get you home. That's the hope that you need to walk out of here with. And when you fall down on your face and make the same mistake you made a thousand times before, you look to heaven and say, Lord, I need you. I can't do it. That's why I'm trusting in you. That, my brothers and sisters, is the hope and the message that we have. And I fibbed. I said two things, one last thing. <laughs> As we prepare before Easter, let us walk out of here and share the hope of Christ with the rest of the world. In Mark chapter 2, remember, the paralytic was brought to Jesus by his friends, and they couldn't get to Jesus because the house was full, right? And what'd they do? They climbed up on the roof, they tore the roof off the house, making a mess of everything, but they didn't care. Why? Because they knew that this man's only hope was Jesus. All right? If they're going to do that for somebody to get physical healing, then why can't we be like that when it comes to our friends and our family and neighbors? They need Jesus. And God has put you in their life. He's ordained for you to be in their life, to be the mechanism by which they hear about it. Go and share Jesus with them. They need Him. And I promise you, if He's prepared their hearts to receive that word, then you can't mess it up. Praise the Lord for that. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.